The Entrepreneur Studio is powered by Heartland. When people want a partner that they can trust to help them build a remarkable business, they do it with Heartland. Because we're entrepreneurs, we're people, and we get it. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 1. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and today we are speaking with restaurateur and founder of Union Square Hospitality Group, Danny Meyer. Danny's claim to fame includes Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Shake Shack, and other iconic dining institutions. In this part of our conversation, Danny guides us from his food-obsessed youth and how he almost missed the lifestyle and career of his dreams by not following his passion. His inspiring story highlights the importance of following the spark to discover the best path for you. Danny Meyer, so glad that you came all the way here to spend some time in the Entrepreneur Studio. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. How's the season uh, going for you? Uh, it's It's been an amazing season, and uh, I think we're all... We're all waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know. In in the restaurant business, it, you know, the the two point five years of COVID uh-huh. have just been such a slog, and uh, and I'm so amazed and impressed with our industry and how yeah how intrepid and resilient and just this can do spirit that that you see throughout our industry and and so there's been this constant drumbeat of well. Don't get too comfortable because there's about to be a recession, or mm. you know, don't get too comfortable because there's going to be some other strain of the flu or COVID or whatever. And we're okay. We're we're, gonna, we're dealing with it, but it's it's almost as if the the consumer who's also hearing that is saying, "Well, I better eat out now because I don't know what tomorrow's going to be like." So we've just never been busier. It's Man. it's absolutely amazing. Uh, well, number one, that's awesome to hear. And I think it's a really interesting topic as it relates to during COVID, the resilience that you were just talking about, it was remarkable how the demand for restaurants was still remained high, but how you got all of your food totally different and it totally changed. What were some of the pivots that you're like, we need to do this and we need to do it quickly? What were those conversations like? Well, we were pretty slow uh, in, in all fairness. You know, um, I, I have a daughter who is in the ice cream business. And she had just opened her ice cream place called Cafe Pana. She had no experience being wow. in the restaurant business. She pivoted so quickly, changed her entire business model. And we're sitting there you know, going about one mile an hour trying to figure out how do we get outdoor dining, yeah. uh, which was not actually permitted even for the longest time. So early in the very early stages, we uh, you know we tried selling wine out the door because there was a special uh, dispensation that the government said you can finally do that. Yeah, uh, you know that that sold about three hundred bucks a day. That mm-hmm. didn't really do much, and it's not like New Yorkers could buy a lot of wine and drive it home, you know, on their bicycle because. Yeah. Nobody was taking the subway. Nobody was taking wanted to be in taxis at that point. Yes. So we were just really, really slow off the mark. And um, we tried the delivery. We tried to do hospitality house calls mm-hmm. by by writing to all of our best customers and saying, first meals on us. You've been so loyal to us. And in the end, I, th- I think where we succeeded the most was thinking about the many, many staff members that we had laid off. And wow. we raised a, a big fund, $2 million, 
with working with our regular guests, we had a couple auctions. We sold gift cards where 100% of the money would go to this fund we created called the Hugs Fund. And uh, I think we probably did a really good job with that, but we did a really bad job of getting back into the business of being restaurateurs. Okay. Well, I don't know what was the maybe the biggest shock, but you know the Chick Fil A's of the world and In and Out Burger and some of these other places. It was shocking how you know the demand for drive-through kind of shot through the roof, and they seem to be you know really well positioned to to skyrocket. And I think that every entrepreneur and every every sort of business owner had to figure out how to scale something quickly. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I'm still the chairman of the board of Shake Shack, yes. which uh, we created back in 2004. And while I was just talking about how slow we were off the mark, I want to be really clear, that was our full service restaurants with the yeah, Union yeah. Square Hospitality Group. But Shake Shack was was pretty quick too with the uh, curbside pickup and, and lots exactly. and lots of delivery. They had a big head start digitally. And uh, it was during COVID actually that Shake Shack really ramped up for the first time having drive-through restaurants because I was the guy who foolishly said back in, you know, 2004, 2005, we will never have drive-through. You know, Shake, Shake Shack is about bringing people together, not getting people in and out really quickly. Yeah. And boy, was I wrong. So Shake Shack, you know, all of a sudden in this past year for the first time Exploded now has about like the others, eight yeah. to 10 drive-through restaurants and that's gonna continue to grow. It's amazing. That pivot has been amazing. And I think that the preparedness and the resilience is the thing that, that every, everybody's ready for. And I, you know, there's the signals that everybody's thinking and feeling about the market and the macroeconomic climate, climate and stuff like that. Everybody's ready, or at least more prepared than we used to be. Everybody's ready. And you know what the most amazing thing was is that people really learned to value restaurants. When It's like that Joni Mitchell song, Don't It Always Seem to Go, that you don't know what you got till it's gone. Yes. And when you couldn't go to a restaurant, it also meant that you couldn't be with people. It's, it's true. It's not just that you that you had to shop and you had to cook and you had to do the dishes. It's that you couldn't be in a social environment. And I think that restaurants have proven in their absence that they play an incredibly valuable role in in society. They it's not just all the jobs that they create, uh, but it's it's also the really the the addition to people's life and and the joy that it gives people to be with people. And that's why I think that at this moment, we're just seeing this frenzy to dine out because no one wants to lose that again. Yeah, it's a precious thing. And you know, I think maybe starting at the beginning is uh, you, you have all of these themes of uh, people and uh, food and all of these themes that just as I've learned about you and, and have followed you through the years and stuff like that, how did the food thing start for you? The food thing, that's a, that's a great way to put it. There's a great MFK Fisher quote that food and love and security are all entwined and it's almost impossible to separate one from the other. And I think that um, food was the comfort that I had growing up. I was the middle child of three, growing up in the most middle city in America, St. Louis, right, right smack dab in the in middle. The middle. And um, when I talk about the middle, it, it truly was. I had Republican dad and grandparents on one side and Democratic mom and grandparents on the other side. And every night the dinner table was a pretty active, we'll call it discussion, okay. about the politics of the day. This is back during the 1970s. So you had Watergate and Vietnam and 
lots and lots of stuff to quote unquote discuss. Yes, lots of things to talk and about. And the thing, and, and I, being the guy in the middle, I was the one that wanted there to be peace at the table. Yes, the peace So my job was to bring the family together and food, it turned out, was the common denominator because everybody in the family liked to eat. And I like to cook. I like to cook with my dad. Um, I like to cook on my own. And, and so food was my comfort. Food was the bond of love. We also had a, um, a housekeeper named Mary Smith, who was the daughter of, of sharecroppers in Mississippi. And Mary took me under her wing. She was also a good cook. I would go down to her house in not one of the better neighborhoods in St. Louis. As soon as I could get my driver's license at the age of 16, I used my car to, to go get food. I got fried chicken and collard greens and sweet potato pie and macaroni and cheese at Mary's house. I would go to Steak and Shake with my pals uh, on a Friday night and get great burgers and fries and milkshakes. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff that would end up uh, informing Big part of your Shake story. Shack down the road. Um, we'd go to Ted Drew's for frozen custard. I, we'd go to Chris's, which was a restaurant on Lindbergh in St. Louis that had a cuckoo clock. And they, the guy who ran the place remembered that I was the kid who only wanted to sit under the cuckoo clock and eat chicken and dumplings on Monday nights. And it was just this really weird thing where I just had this connection to food. Uh, now, I will say... It wasn't just because we had a, a dog named Ratatouille, um, which was not the typical thing a kid growing up in St. Louis had. Yeah. But my dad was in the uh, travel business. In fact, he and my mom, uh, for the first two years of their marriage, were based in France because he was counterintelligence in the army. Oh, my goodness. Language pro prowess. And, of course, during the first two years of their marriage, stationed right on the border of France and Germany, there were almost no altercations. So what did they do for two years? It was an extended honeymoon, and they basically took a car. I think they called it a Simca. It's a brand. I don't even know what it looks like yeah, right now. Yeah, neither do I. But they drove through the French countryside and just ate, and they met the innkeepers of these small hotels. Okay. Um, and my dad came back to St. Louis after that, after those two years, started a travel agency, and he became the free, he was designing driving tours for for his starting with his friends in St. Louis. He was quite an entrepreneur, and then that business grew. He called it Open Road Tours, but he became the first American agent for this group of of French inns, which at the time was called Relais de Campagne, and later it became Relais and Chateau. So then we always had French people living in our home. Oh my goodness! Who worked for him by day, and then at nighttime they'd be speaking French at the dinner table, especially when they didn't want us to know what they were talking yeah. about. And it just was food and wine, food and wine. It was, mm -hmm. it was. I was getting this education. Yeah, I'll tell you one other quick story. I was yeah. seven years old when I took my first trip to to France. Uh, my sister at the time was nine. My little brother was probably about four. And my mom made us keep a diary, which I hated. I mean, who, what seven-year-old wants yeah. to be keeping a diary? And to be forced. To be forced. <laughs> but the good news is that I did it. And I'm sitting there at the age of seven writing about this great quiche Lorraine that I ate and these fraises de bois with creme fraiche, the wild strawberries. And, you know, this stuff was making an impact. We didn't have yeah. that. We didn't have food TV. We didn't have those kind of ingredients. And so... Food as a discovery, food as love, food as an adventure 
was something that just always, always appealed to me. Now, it never dawned on me that this should become or could become a career. Yeah. Because that's just not. It was just a passion. It, it was how you observe life. It was how I observe life. Yeah. But it wasn't even necessarily, I wasn't even aware that that was how I observed life. That's just who I was. I didn't have the self-awareness to say, hey, this weird thing is going on. Yeah. And you should pay attention to it because yeah. it might lead somewhere. Or yeah, yeah. There's the 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 awareness of that was wasn't there. You're just like I'm observing life, and this is this is what I'm doing. And it, so it turned into like in the international flavor seemed to be a theme for you, right? So you're a tour. I, I heard you're a tour guide in Rome well, at some point. I, I did that when I was 20, but when I was 12, we took a trip to Italy because my dad was expanding his business to Italy and and. Foolishly, I can say in retrospect, got into the hotel business. He leased a hotel in Rome and he leased another hotel in Milan. And we stayed at this hotel in Rome. I was there for my 12th birthday. And boy, was that a revelation. We had a, a tasting dinner of eight pastas that night. Oh, wow. And I, again, I had never seen pasta like that growing up. Yeah, totally and different. I can still almost smell what, what some of the restaurants in Rome smelled like. And so, this whole thing just kept kept growing and growing. And it's true, by the time my sister and I and my brother each turned 20, my dad gave us each the opportunity to spend a summer working for him in one of the cities that he did business with in Europe. Mm -hmm. So my sister had picked Denmark because that was her favorite thing. She'd been a foreign exchange student there. I picked Rome and my, my little brother, when he was 20, would, would pick Paris after that. So I got this really incredible immersion into, into Rome and into Italy. Amazing. So one of the things that you, you mentioned is your dad being an entrepreneur. So you've got this theme of richness of culture. Uh, so people are at, at the center of what you observed growing up. And then you've got this entrepreneurship thing. And then you've got this, this idea of hospitality and food as kind of the pillars of what you just described. What were some of the things that started to click for you that was like, this could be a thing for me. This could be a part of my life. Well, I never thought it would be part of my life. I just loved doing it. Yeah. And so uh, the summer I did work for him as a tour guide, basically the way the day would go is that he was selling group tours and he was selling to airline employees and their families. That was the niche. It, it's a group that gets incredible discounts uh, on travel. As a matter of fact, back in those days, because of my dad's business, until I was 21, I was able to fly anywhere Pan Am flew for $44 round trip. Wow. So I went to Rome several times, even in, in my college years. I was taking a lot of Italian classes uh, back at Trinity. Because it was, it was almost like if you've ever uh, snorkeled, you see there's a whole world. Or if you've ever scuba dived, you see there's even a bigger world. Mm -hmm. Well, learning a new language for me gave me the opportunity to, to discover a whole different world. Um, but I think what was happening as a tour guide, I would start my day often by going to the, uh, to the airport in Rome, Fiumicino, very, very early, mm -hmm. knowing which group I was going to be picking up at the airport. I was the guy that would, everybody had a red tag on their suitcase, and so I would hold up the sign and collect all these cranky people who had just been flying all night and didn't know each other. You know, maybe there would be a husband and wife. Um, of course, I was always rooting for there to be more flight attendants and fewer baggage handlers on the trip because um, I'd be with these people for the next handful of days. And I would take them on a bus back to the hotel. 
and I'd get on the microphone on the bus, I was the guy in the front of the bus, explaining the trip that was about to happen, telling him about how not to carry their pocketbook on the side, you know, where a bicyclist mm-hmm. or a motorcyclist could pick it off from them. And um, what was happening and, and what I found I was really, really adept at and didn't even know it was I could read people's signs. I could see who needed to feel the most important. Mm. I could see who needed to be turned around, who was the most skeptical. I, I could see, I could, I could read almost every single person. Mm. And uh, I just had this innate desire and ability to figure out who was the hardest to please person on day one. And by the time we got to day four or five, I was hell-bent on making them the happiest. And it wasn't just because they tipped, and they did tip. I loved that. I, yeah. loved, I loved earning those tips. But I just figured out that I was really good at letting people be seen and feel heard and, and giving them what they needed to, mm. to feel great. I also... That's the peacemaker in you. It, it was. I think that was based on a lot of the stuff I'd grown up doing as a kid in, uh, in St. Louis. But there was this other part of it, which is that... I was using trattorias in Rome as part of the bargain about how I was going to make people happy. Okay. So whereas the tour that they had signed up for might have said, today you're going to go to a cameo factory, which is what, you know, that's a gimmick that tours do as if, if it's a great, it's not a cultural thing to go to a cameo factory. Yeah. It's just like the tour guide gets a kickback from the cameo company uh, for okay. every cameo they sell. And I didn't want to do that. And I, and I didn't think... I, I thought I had a better plan, which is I'm going to take them to restaurants. And I started to discover these family-run trattorias that would actually pay me a thousand lira for every person I brought in. Wow. And I was making money, making these people so much happier than if they had done all the stuff that the tourists said to do. I almost got in trouble for it's it. It's a win-win. It was a win for me, but uh, we were going off script in oh, order yeah. to do it. But I was using food as part of the means to make people feel better. Yeah. And it was working. So again, I, I wasn't at all thinking at the age of 20 that this could possibly be a career. I was a poli-sci major in mm-hmm. college and mm-hmm. you know, my whole mind was, and I was interested in politics, I was interested in news. Um, Presidential campaign, yeah. Where I, I ended up, actually at the age of 10, I was working on a congressional campaign as a volunteer kid, and I would do that year after year. I finally had my first uh, professional job, $214 a week, working for John Anderson's independent run. Of course, I picked the guy in the middle. Yeah, yeah, um, of I course. didn't pick the Republican or the Democrat. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get the guy in the middle. There's a pattern um, here. But, but I, I just have to say that while food was a through line to everything that made me happy, it just was never ever in my mind that that was a valid entrepreneurial career choice. It was, it was something I liked doing. Yeah. You know, I'd, any city I went to, I would drive everybody crazy by stopping and reading every menu at every restaurant that we passed. And um, I was learning a lot, but not towards an end as far as I was concerned. Yeah. Well, tell us about how Union Square Cafe came about. Well, Union Square Cafe came about, um, I've got to go back a little bit because of my poli-sci major and my interest in politics. Soon after graduating uh, from Trinity, I moved to Chicago, which is the the New York of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. That was a big step to go from St. Louis to Chicago. And I had family there. My mom's family was all from Chicago. 
And uh, I was able to get a job at the local PBS affiliate, WTTW, working for the public affairs, well, the, the guy that was on TV every day talking about politics. Mm -hmm. And I would help him with some of the research he was doing. And that was pretty cool. And there came a day, I'll never forget this, where I got two new job offers. One was for the NBC affiliate in Chicago to do their public affairs program. And I, by the way, I didn't even mention this earlier, but when I was at school, I was the news director on the radio station. Okay. I, jazzed, I was a jazz DJ. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't sure, was I gonna go into journalism, broadcasting, or was I going to be a lawyer? Okay. Because poli sci, the thing you're supposed to do is go be a lawyer after yeah. that. So on that day that I got the job offer for NBC, to, by the way, to do a 4 a.m. Sunday morning show, wow. which has a viewership of two, yeah. maybe three, yeah. maybe three people. But by law, uh, the FTC requires stations to have this public affairs programming. So I got that job offer, and I also got the job offer to, to be the Cook County field coordinator for John Anderson's independent run at, at the presidency. And I took that, I took the political job, and I took it not only because I, I really liked him as a candidate, but I never would have gotten a job with that much responsibility working with the Republicans or the Democrats because mm -hmm. they had an established you know, system already with, with lots of professionals. So I took that job, it was great, great experience. It, it informed actually to this day how I employ people because mm -hmm. I was 22 at this point 100% of the people reporting to me were volunteers, meaning that if they, oh, wow. if they were late for work, I couldn't dock them their pay, couldn't give anyone a raise. And the only thing I had to motivate people to do all the stuff we needed to do, which was essentially get out the vote and raise more money, yeah. that's really the only that's two it. things we had to do. The only way I could motivate them was with the higher purpose, the higher calling of why we were all coming to work mm -hmm. to get this guy mm -hmm. elected and the ideas that he was talking about. And so to this day, I believe one of the secrets to what has worked in our culture at Union Square Hospitality Group and also at Shake Shack is that we treat our employees as if they are volunteering for the job. Wow. They get paychecks, mind you. Yeah. But my sense is that if you have what it takes to get a job with us, you could probably get another 25 jobs at the same pay rate somewhere else. So as far as I'm concerned, I owe you a big gratitude for volunteering to bring your gifts to our company. Yeah. And by, having, by taking that approach, which then leads to servant leadership, which is that my job when I come to work is to serve the people who I am expecting to serve our customers. Wow. And I think I learned that working on that campaign at that time. Now, all that said, um, I did take, I, I was completely burned out after that election. And anyone who's ever worked in a campaign knows that when you have a, a finite date of November 5th or whatever, the election date in November, whatever, there's just not enough hours you can put in because you can never raise quite enough dollars and you can never get quite enough votes. So you mm -hmm. just kill yourself trying to make it happen. So when that election was over and done, and I think Anderson got about six and a half percent of the vote, which was good enough for me to get my final paycheck with matching funds, I said to myself, all right, let me try something new. And that something new was, was let me spend a year in New York City. And I had spent time in New York as a college student driving down from Hartford. 
I loved it there. I loved the restaurants. I loved going to hear jazz. I loved going to the horse races. Mm -hmm. I just loved the energy that, that I felt in New York City. So I said, let me just try that for a year. So I go to New York and um, my grandfather in Chicago had invested um, in a small company called Checkpoint Systems. Checkpoint was selling electronic tags to stop shoplifters. Okay. I'm sure you've seen these oh, things. Yeah. They either put a pin in clothing or what Checkpoint had come up with right about the time I joined the company was a pressure sensitive sticker that had a printed radio circuit on the back of it. And so you could deter or catch shoplifters even in things like uh, libraries where you, where you couldn't obviously put one of those white pins through a book. Yeah, yeah. You could put a sticker in the book or you could do it in grocery stores. You could do it in drug stores. And so I took a job at, at Checkpoint Systems as the special projects manager, which means nothing. Yeah. But I followed the top salesman in the company um, who had the New York district. And as luck would have it, within about five months of my taking the job, he quits and goes to the competition. And they gave me the post. Wow. So I got the whole New York district and I became the top salesman in the company. No way. Almost overnight. I was I was making in commissions about 125,000 bucks a year, which in the night early 1980s with yeah. nobody to support but me. And what I would do with my money was to just keep buying checkpoint stock. I'd had no experience with buying public equities, but the stock, you know, during the time I was there, I just, I liked, I felt like I was betting on myself. Yeah. Because I could help move the needle on their sales. And the stock went from something like two and a half bucks a share. This was over the counter OTC, which yeah, yeah. predated NASDAQ. Went from about two and a half bucks a share to about 12 bucks a share. And so now I'm really minting yes. <laughs> for myself. And then after doing this for three or four years, they offered me the chance to, to go open an office in London. So now I'm at a crossroads because I'm going, do you really want to be stopping shoplifters for the rest of your life? Yeah. And the answer was no. It was a great, great experience. Learning to sell, I think, is such an important skill for, for anybody. Absolutely. And this, this, is, this was the crossroads for me. Um, I was at this point about 25, maybe. Yeah, I was about 25 years old. And I said, okay, you're either going to journalism school or you're going to law school, but you got to plant your flag somewhere. Mm -hmm. I was completely confused. I went, toured some journalism schools. I don't think I ever toured one law school, but somehow I came down on the side of, okay, you should just go be a lawyer. That's what you should do with your yeah. poli sci degree because you really like politics. Mm -hmm. And back in those days, almost all politicians were lawyers. Were lawyers. They weren't actors and business people and all the other kind of stuff we've mm -hmm. seen since mm -hmm. then. So I did study for my LSAT, took the Kaplan course, hated every minute of it. And the night before taking my LSATs, I was out for dinner at an Italian restaurant in New York City on the Upper East Side called Elio's with my aunt and uncle who lived in New York mm -hmm. um, and my grandmother who was in from Chicago. And they're all having a great time. It was good to be with them and everything, but I was in a really bad mood. I was in a bad mood for a lot of reasons. They're drinking Chianti and eating pasta. And I got to wake up at 
six the next morning to go do something I don't even want to do. Mm -hmm. And my uncle takes a look at me and he says, what the hell is eating you anyway? And I said, I got to take my LSAT tomorrow. And he said, well, of course you do. You want to be a lawyer. And yeah, what's going on with that? And I, I go, I don't really want to be a lawyer. Oh, man. And he dropped his spoon and he got really pissed off at me. And he said, do you have any idea how long you're going to be dead? And I go, no. And he what kind goes, of question is that? Yeah. And he goes, I don't know either, but I'll tell you one thing. You're going to be dead a hell of a lot longer than you're going to be alive. Why in the world would you do something you have no passion for? And I go... Um, I don't really know what else I could do. And he got even madder at me and he said, you gotta be kidding me. All I've ever heard you talk about your entire life is restaurants and food. It still didn't dawn on me at that minute. I, I said, so what am I supposed to go eat in restaurants the rest of my life? He goes, no, you fool, you should open one. It was sitting there underneath my nose the entire time and it took that moment and that amazing uncle to put it right in my face. So I did take the LSAT the next morning. Yeah, but think about think about that right there. That was the that was the turning point in my entire life. But everything we just talked about, you're at an Italian restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. So you got the international flavor of uh, of all of the cultural things that you just talked about. You've got family sitting right there. You're in a metropolitan area where, you know, the, a lot of the the stuff you just talked about, you're having food and you're at a crossroads. Everything, it, it, that is a serendipitous moment in my mind. All of those little themes of everything that just came together. So that is a huge moment for you. That moment changed the entire course of my life. I, I'll, I'll just share that I did take the LSAT, never applied to one law school. I don't think I did very well on them. I don't know that I would have gotten into any good law school. But uh, what I did do, that was a Saturday morning that I took the LSAT. That afternoon... I picked up some pamphlet on the street of New York. They had all these little yellow containers with free newspapers that had all these courses you could take, the learning annex and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm. And I saw one for something called the New York Restaurant School, which is probably a fly-by-night institution. Yeah. And you could take a class called Restaurant Management 101. And so I called one of my buddies from Trinity, fraternity brother of mine, and I, he was working in a bank training program at U.S. Trust. And I said, I got this crazy idea. What do you think about opening a restaurant together? You be the money guy, I'll be the food guy, and I think we can make this thing work. And he goes, okay, I'll sign up. So he starts taking this class with me. And um, my guess is there were about eight, class, eight episodes before you were done. After class two, he makes the mistake of telling his parents that he's taking a restaurant management class. You gotta understand that, that restaurants just were not considered what you do with a liberal arts degree back yeah, then. Yeah. His dad gets really, really mad. And he said, no son of mine is going into that nasty business. You go back to your bank and I expect you to go to business school. And so my friend felt really, really bad, but he, um, he dropped out of the class. I kept going. And he felt so bad that he said, you know, our bank has one restaurant client. Because back then, banks ran the other way if, mm -hmm. if you said yeah. you were in the restaurant business. Yeah. And he said, I bet I can get you an, an interview if you want with, with that restaurant client. You want me to try that? So I go, sure, sure, I'll, I'll do that. 
So I got the interview. The interview was basically the owner sitting in the middle of the bar and I walk in through the front door and the owner beckons me to come towards him. As soon as I get to him sitting in his bar stool, he tells me to stop. He looks me up and down from my wallabies to my Brooks Brothers shirt and he goes, you'll do. That was my job interview. No way. I got the job, big deal, $250 a week. It's a big raise from when I was working in politics. So I, I decided I'm gonna give up that whole sales thing, making all that money. And I've just gotta get this out of my system. I gotta figure out, is this something I really wanna do? Yeah. Was my uncle right? And so on my very first day, they gave me the job of assistant lunch manager, which was BS because I wasn't a manager. I was okay. basically, I was responsible for checking in all the waiters. I was responsible for, for working with the chef to understand the specials of the day, typing them up, running down the street to the copy shop, because mm -hmm. back then that's how you printed things, stuffing them in the menus. And then the coolest thing of that job was I got to be on the front door and welcome all the guests, decide where people were gonna sit. So I was a maitre d'. And I did this actually on day one, I've gotta say, and this gets back to how this was a turning point in my life when my uncles told me to get rid of the idea and the notion of being a lawyer. But on my very first day of work, I'm running down the stairs to the basement because they entrusted me with answering the telephones for reservations because they mm -hmm. figured I wouldn't screw that up. And running up the steps with a tray full of butter was one of the most beautiful women I think I've ever seen. And so I go home that night and I, I called my friend. I said, I think I'm gonna like this a lot, this job. On day two, she's gone. Turned out that she would gotten a role in Guys and Dolls in uh, Indiana. And I go, maybe I won't love this job so much. <laughs> anyway, that woman ended up being my wife many years later. And so if you think about that moment, I got a career. The restaurant I worked at is exactly one block from where I live. It's, it's, it's a moment's walk from five of our restaurants. I got a neighborhood, a wife, a career. Wow. And best of all, I didn't go down a path that I just would have hated. And I just, I just think I'm just how fortunate I am and how fortunate anyone is when, they, when their work is, is who they are and when their work is what they love. You know, th that's a really powerful thing where it seemed, if, if I were to translate, you were chasing a spark. There was something going on inside of you that you were maybe not necessarily, you, you're not necessarily visibly in conflict of, but like you saw a little glimpse of what your uncle was encouraging you to do. And it, there was a culmination of things that you'd been sort of preparing for, maybe weren't aware of, but you decided to chase a spark and things started to unfold for you. And I think that a lot of, people and entrepreneurs choose not to chase the spark. They maybe I go, that, I I, I'm gonna do what I'm supposed point. to do versus chasing the spark. I love that. And I think the spark is where it's at. Uh, I just have to share that uh, I have an amazing assistant uh, back in, in New York City. And like one of the very first meetings we had, I said, I wanna teach you this technique I have there's a lot of stuff that's gonna come in. It's gonna be emails, phone calls, snail mail, Twitter, Instagram. There's just a constant text messages, a lot of stuff coming in. And the four things you have to think about, I, I call traff. 
everything that comes in, you either need to trash, you either need to, or refer it to someone else, or act on it yourself, or file it away. And she, she came back the next day, and this is one of the reasons she got the job. She said, I think there should be an S in there too, because I've watched how you work. And I said, what's that? She said, spark. Mm. She said, because I've watched how when stuff comes in, you don't just trash, refer, act, and file. Every now and then there's something that comes in and it sparks something in you. Yeah. And when, it, when we see that spark and feel that spark, that's when magic can happen. Yes. So I really appreciate that you, you said that. I mean, it's a big thing for me. Like I do think um, there are these things that, you know, I, I would say that not all of our intu- intuition is perfect all the time, but there are these moments that you're like, there's a choice in front of me and I really feel drawn to this other thing. And I, I really do think chasing the spark is what kind of is life-giving about even entrepreneurship or uh, relationships or, you know, partnerships even, you know, there's all of these different huge pillars in our life and they will make or break a lot of things. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm truly passionate about is recognizing those opportunities, recognizing that moment and helping others do that is something that I'm really passionate about as well is just sitting there talking to like what your uncle did, man, that is like, that's life giving for me when I can sit and talk to somebody and be like, no, 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 pay attention to this. This is the spark for you. You know, this is the thing. And paying attention is truly the thing. Yes. Uh, there are these moments that happen all the time in life. And, uh, you know, some people just look at them as being coincidences. But if you really pay attention, you know, there's, there's many of these sparks that you just say, okay, that's, that's fine, but that's not me. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Then every now and then there's the kind of thing you go, you know, I should do that. Mm-hmm. And then every now and then you go, no, I really want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to spend more of my life as much as I can doing the things, the, following the sparks that I want to do and fewer of the sparks that I say, I don't really want to, but I should do. Mm-hmm. The shoulds seem to get me in trouble. The wants almost never do. Oh man, that's powerful. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. For links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, or for more information on how we can help you run and grow a better business, see the show notes of this episode.